0: Alright, tonight we'll be in 1 Corinthians. Paul's a epistle to the Corinthians, the first one. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm sorry, 2nd. 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Oh, uh, let's read verse start in verse 12 to get a little context. We'll just read just a very few verses here. uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 12, For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that you may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. Beware, and it's not nearly the trouble that it was years ago, but years ago in this country, when when there were plenty of good Bible-believing and fundamentalist churches, they looked real good on the outside. I mean, they did. And it was a blessing. This was right back in the uh, near, soon after the sexual revolution and the hippie craze was going on and the drug culture and it was a mess and everybody looked a mess. And when all of a sudden these old-fashioned Christians and Bible-believing fundamentalists showed up looking like people that, you know, at least knew how to get out of bed in the mornings, man, it was a blessing. Here was somebody that had something on the ball. Here was somebody that... Uh, knew something about old-fashioned American Christianity and is a blessing. But the problem with that is it can be faked. And you can look real good on the outside and be real messed up on the inside. And by the time I grew up in that as a child, and by the time I got about college age, I saw it wasn't lasting with almost any of them. Uh, maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration to say almost any of them, but certainly with the majority of them it didn't last. I mean it didn't even last not even one full generation let alone go a second. So I knew something was wrong and all us humans have a bunch of things wrong with us. But one of the big ones was they gloried in appearance and not in heart. Now nowadays oh boy, they couldn't care less about appearance. (laughs) Nowadays they've gone to the other extreme. Now just it's all fine. <laughs> no, that's not a good idea either. I mean, at least roll out of bed and you know fix a couple things so they don't stink. <laughs> I mean, nowadays, nobody cares about this stuff at all. But you've got to be careful about, even if you do straighten up some things and quit some bad habits and start some good ones and clean up a little here and there, you've got to remember that doesn't necessarily mean the inside is clean at all. If you want to get the inside clean, one of the ways to help that is to clean out the outside, clean up the outside zone. Amen. That is a part of it. That is not the whole picture. If you got a dirty heart, one of the first things you need to do is quit hanging out with and looking at dirty stuff. Because what goes in the eye affects the heart even though that's an outward thing. So don't, don't make it like it's this competition between the inward and the outward. They're both very important, and they also interact with one another. That's very true. So don't go, oh, we're inwardly clean. We're just do not paying attention to the outward. No, you're not. That's not how it works. But it is true, you do need to pay, pay plenty of attention to both. All right, now, with that context, about them the glory in appearance and not in heart, verse 13, he continues here in 2 Corinthians 5, for whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Now, what does that mean, beside yourself? Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doesn't make thee mad. When somebody is beside themselves, they've gone a little crazy or a little schizo. We might say things like, he needs to get it together, man. <laughs> Problem is, he's he's going this way and that way. Once in a while, when uh, the phone's ringing and there's something that needs to be handled at work and something needs to be handled with the kids and something needs to be handled with the church and a bill needs to be paid and something's tore up and I need to schedule somebody to get that fixed, I start going like that. (laughs) And I have to get it together one at a time. You ever seen anybody at a real busy restaurant, a short order cook, and all these orders are being given to them, you know what the only thing they can do is just focus on one and Alright, so it says here, for whether we be beside ourselves, in other words, they just go, on, and when uh, he has come to himself, why? He had been going all different ways. He came to himself. He said, how many hired servants of my father has bread enough in the spare? For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. He says, when I do go crazy, I'm a fool for Christ. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, that's, you know, I've got my brains about me, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them, and rose again. All right, now my text is the phrase there in the beginning of verse 14, For the love of Christ. Uh, We Christians need to be doing what we do for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. If it's for any other reason, it's just, it doesn't work. If it's, and this this is what Bible believers are bad for, some of them, and I I was one of this number. We're bad for doing things because we want to be right. And you should want to be right. And that should be one of the considerations. But the big one, the overarching one, the one that dominates all the others should be you love the Lord Jesus Christ. And second, that you love other other people because he said um, whether we be sober, it is for your cause. So when you get your brains together, it's to serve the Lord Jesus and to serve others. That's what we'll be preaching tonight, the love of Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you help us as we preach these things. I pray your spirit come down and bear witness to the truth of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, the motive for the spreading of the gospel is the same as for the gospel itself, the love of Christ. Um, A lot of times when you can't get something done, it's because you haven't really fixed your why, your motive for it. You see that it is needed, but You got other things you're interested in, but when you understand the why of it, a lot of times that gives you the impetus, that gives you the motivation to actually go do it. And when the why is something as big and lofty as loving the Lord Jesus Christ, all of a sudden you'll get it done. I've worked in retail for a lot of my life, and uh, there's always something demanding. There's always something urgent. But when I was falling in love and wanting to get married, I was Magically able to find time to organize dates and buy gifts and write letters and make long-distance phone calls and all other stuff that before that I would have swore I didn't have time for. I was working, I was going to school, I was taking care of things all the time. All of a sudden, I had time for it. When you love Jesus Christ like you want, like you ought to, all of a sudden. The motivation takes care of a bunch of the problems. Alright, now, these few verses briefly give the gospel and describe its effect. Both its effect on the saved and its intended effect on the lost. It declares, as God's word consistently does, that man is ruined. But it goes on to reveal God's grace to him. It talks about Christ's vicarious. That's a fancy word for substitution. He's our substitute. His vicarious atonement, but it goes on to describe the effect it should have upon me and you, even though we've already experienced it. It does this by telling us the effect it had on Paul and those with him. Now, it's not an academic knowledge only, but a powerful, life-changing effect, a motivation to action. And as is often the case, it may them be accused of madness or too much enthusiasm or being beside themselves. But the love of Christ is too powerful to leave no change in your life. If you love Jesus Christ, it will. Now there are people who get saved and even though it should change them because the seed is never tended to and watered and fed and taken care of, they don't really show much fruit. But now, if you love Jesus Christ, that will show. If any man love God, the same is known of him. When it is well realized, the love of Christ will change your life, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, and a bunch of things. So let's look at this great text, short as it is, and see the the few things that we can learn from it about the love of Christ. All right, first of all, let's look at the description of all men. It says they are dead. It says at the end of verse 14, then we're all dead. And when we're born into this uh, life, you know what we are? We are spiritually dead. We're not alive. If somebody comes to us and talks about praying and reading the Bible and the Lord Jesus and living for him, we're going to be anything else. Somebody says, oh, this might be the day the Lord comes back. Doesn't that sound good? We say, yeah, whatever, man. <laughs> who won the game? It's just, it's not, we're dead. We're dead, spiritually speaking. Uh, we're in Corinthians. Let me read a quick passage from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead spiritually. As far as the Lord is concerned, uh, no praise for him, no prayer, no understanding, no God, just dead. Uh, Dead spiritually, but not only dead spiritually, dead judiciously or officially or legally. You know, when somebody dies, uh, the people in the ambulance come and take him to the hospital and Some doctor, coroner or something will examine the body and say, okay, he's dead. And they will officially declare him dead. We're not only spiritually dead, but we're dead in the sense that we're declared dead in the Word of God. Romans 5.12, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. So the Bible declares us dead. Now it's pretty good if a doctor declares somebody dead. I mean, that's pretty sure. Usually if a doctor declares a guy dead, he's, you know, he's checked him and he really is dead. But if God Almighty declares you dead, he outranks any doctor there's ever been. Him. If he says you're dead, you're gone. Romans 5.12, Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. Anybody here sin? Alright. The wages that you earn for that is you die. God said that, not me. Uh, John 3.18 He that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So the Lord has said you're, you're already dead and you're already under condemnation. Don't get the idea that you do some good deeds and you do some bad deeds, and one day you go up to judgment and put the good deeds in one side and the bad deeds in the other, and whichever one weighs the most. At that point, we decide if you're dead and condemned. No, you're dead and condemned right now. Amen. But thank God the Lord offers you a way out of it. All right, so you're dead spiritually, you're dead judiciously, or officially, or legally, however you want to say that one. Uh, Then you're dead eternally. Here's the problem with uh, spiritual death. It never ends. It's the second death. You die, your body goes in a grave, and then your soul and spirit die. And that's, that's all of you. The outward you and the inward you, and they're both gone. That's a horrible thing. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. So, you're pronounced dead. When you physically die, you die and go to hell. And then, when you're brought back up for that last judgment, they don't ever have a deal where, you know, he's had good behavior in hell. So, we're going to let him out now. You no, know, if you were dead in hell, you're going to be dead in the lake of fire forever. It's already said. They never say, oh, we made, oh, we had a clerical error. And where this one was uh, Robert M. Schoolfield, this was Robert J. Schoolfield, and we put the wrong one in the wrong category. And so they correct that and get him out. No, that's not the way it happens. If you're dead now, you'll be dead in hell, and you'll be dead in the lake of fire outside of somebody stepping in and changing your condition. And it have to be somebody that can do what? Raise the dead, because your problem is you're dead. Alright, so you're dead spiritually, you're dead judiciously, you're dead eternally, your deadness lasts forever. And I'll tell you something else, it's dead universally. Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. When we go out in this world witnessing, we're going to a population of people, all of whom are dead or used to be dead until they got saved. It is a universal condition that we are dead and headed for death, and it's an eternal death. So that's the description of all men. Dead. And that's a good good description of them if you're trying to get anything out of them spiritually. If you doubt it, just go out on the street and try to deal with some people. (laughs) They may be very alive in many ways, but as soon as you bring up anything spiritual, you know in cartoons when somebody dies, they draw the X's over their eyes, (laughs) Spiritually speaking, the X's are already on the eyes. Alright, that's the description of all men. But, let's look at the display of Christ's love here. It says, died for them and rose again. So, you're dead, you're headed for physical death, and then eternal spiritual death, and as a matter of fact, you're already dead spiritually. It just all the effects of it haven't shown yet, that Jesus Christ came down and died for you. Now, what does that imply? If he came down here as a human and died for you, that implies that first he showed up in the flesh for you. The Bible verse on this is Luke 2.11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now, he was speaking to some Jewish people at that time, but later in that same chapter, Luke chapter 2, it says, A light to lighten the Gentiles. There's just as much a sense in which he came for us Gentiles as there is that he came for the Jews. Now, he came for the Jews for a specific reason, to set up his kingdom there. We understand that. But he came for all of them. We all need our souls and spirits saved, Jew or Gentile, male or female, old or young, rich or poor. Our souls and spirits are dead. So he first came in the flesh for us. Secondly, while he was in the flesh, he did right even in suffering. Now, you and I are in the flesh, You know what we don't do, we don't be do right all the time. We can't give that testimony, I do always those things which please him. Last time somebody overcharged you or misunderstood you or cut you off in traffic, did you do always those things which please him? <laughs> Jesus could actually say that. Isn't that amazing? And he did it even when they were persecuting him, beating him, killing him my passage I won't hear on this. 1 Peter chapter 2. These are not my favorite verses. 1 Peter 2, 21. Well, let's get 20 to get to... Uh, let's get 19 to get the context. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief suffering wrongfully. I'm not real crazy about when I suffer rightfully, but I sure don't want to suffer wrongfully. But the Bible says it's thankworthy if for conscience toward God you endure grief, suffering wrongfully. That's not right. That's not just. No, it wasn't just what Jesus had to go through either. No. You won't be like him? Verse 20, but what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. When people treat you unfairly and misunderstand you and persecute you and run you down, maybe beat on you a little bit, and and you don't deserve it, the Lord says, Amen, I'll accept that. <laughs> oh, but you know how I know this bunch that calls themselves Christian in our day sometimes don't know the Jesus I know? Because the Jesus I know, part of living for Him and serving Him with all the joys that go with it, and believe me, there are a lot of joys. But there are also a lot of You live for Jesus, you will be sore often. (laughs) And it won't always be him. Sometimes it will be his enemies uh, trying to tempt you. And the Lord said if you'll take it. But sometimes it's him correcting you. If you live for Jesus and you're you're not sore quite a bit in your life from spankings. Not the Jesus I know. (laughs) I've known him for years and he, he, he whips me regularly. Verse 21, For even hereunto were ye called. There's why. That's our calling. You know, we talk about the call to preach, the call to the mission field. (laughs) You were called to suffer wrongfully. That's part of your calling. man. You you don't hear that talk much, do you? Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Now that's some of the Footprints of Jesus <laughs> that I don't exactly want to walk in. But that's what I'm called to do. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. So the Lord Jesus came in the flesh for us. He continued to do right. A lot of times I have justified myself and defended myself. Oh, how I've defended myself over the years. I wish I had. But I've defended myself by saying, well, no, I didn't just do that on my own. They provoked me. They made me do that. They was mean to me. They yelled at me. (laughs) Oh, the defenses that I have given myself. Uh, the Bible says, I don't care if they are reviling you, don't revile them again. Did that verse say that? I mean, I, that is not my favorite verse. Out of reverence, I'm not going to say I hate it, <laughs> <laughs> but I hate it. <laughs> I just hate that verse. That's what it says to do. And if you'll do that, you'll have a more calm, peaceful, and joyful life than if you get my five... <laughs> Tell this one, while you're fighting with them, you know you're right. And this one, you're fighting with them, you know you're right. And this one, you know you're right. And this one, you know you're right. And you'll have all these things, and you'll be right, but you'll be miserable. Amen. <laughs> Best thing to do is just take it like Jesus did. And I don't enjoy telling you that. I don't enjoy trying to live, live it. So he came in the flesh for us. He continued to do right in the flesh, even under suffering. But above all, he came to die for us. We all know that Jesus died on that cross. There are crucifixes everywhere. Even heathen wear crosses and crucifixes on their jewelry and on their clothes and in their art. I mean, it's everywhere. That thing is a universally recognized symbol, is it not? Yes, it is. Old Testament sacrifices foreshadowed this. The prophets foretold this. Jesus himself told it to his disciples. His seriousness showed this on his mind in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when he says, Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. His transfiguration, he talked about it with Moses and Elijah. Behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, if you found out that I was in a meeting in here, And everybody said, now look, this is a closed-door meeting. Don't go in there. We had, I don't know, Tom Gingrich maybe standing guard at the door saying, don't go in there. This is an important meeting. And you looked in there, and I was meeting with the senator from Tennessee talking about some important things. That'd be pretty impressive, and you'd, you'd kind of leave that alone. You'd be calling each other and saying, what is Bob talking to the senator about? What world's going on there? But what if it was dead people? From generations before, and famous dead people like Moses and Elijah in my office having a meeting with me. You reckon that'd be an important meeting? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you something. When Jesus was on this earth, Moses and Elijah came back from the dead, and it was all shining like you can't believe. And you know what they were talking about? Jesus' death that was coming. That's right. This is an important meeting dead serious matter. So he came above all things to die for us. Now one thing I want to say about his death is it was voluntary. He was willing to do it for us. Most of my trials (laughs) let me just tell you they're not voluntary. I would stop them if I could. (laughs) But the Lord Jesus willingly came down here knowing what he was going through. And went through it for us. John 10, 17, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. And he chose to do that. No other reason than he loved us. You tell me any other reason he could have possibly done that. There's no other explanation. He would have been fine. You think heaven would have gone broke without us? (laughs) No, he would have been fine. It was to save us. It was voluntary. I'll tell you something else. It was shameful. Bad enough that he took the physical beings for us. Bad enough that he took the broken fellowship with the Father, so you and I never have have to go through that. But on top of that, it was shameful. People that were way weaker than him, he was letting them beat on him. People that were way more guilty than him, he was letting them judge him. Isn't that funny how people will look at the Lord and the Lord's people and say, We're judging them too much? Let me tell you something. When Jesus Christ showed up on this earth, the world judged him. What a ridiculous thing. We're going to judge the Holy Son of God. On top of that, they stripped him off naked. Now, when you see pictures of the crucifixion, they always put a loincloth on him, you know, just for decency. They stripped him plumb naked in front of that whole crowd. Amen. It was shameful in every way you can imagine it being shameful. And he still went through it. It was it was even with all that, it's still extraordinary that it still happened. Uh, number one, he was pronounced innocent by Pilate, the one who had the power to let him go. And he still ended up getting crucified. And he, he wasn't just found innocent once or twice. Pilate found him innocent at least three times, we know he said it. His own nation that he had only done good for cried for his life. That made no sense. They all wanted to make him king when he was feeding them. But when word was getting out that maybe he was doing something contrary to Roman government, all of a sudden they wanted to they wanted to be sure to keep their good place with the Roman yeah. government. Nature was affected. While he was on that cross, the sky turned dark. The earthquake, the rocks rent, the graves opened, the veil of the temple was torn. Roman soldiers feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And if that weren't enough, a bunch of dead people came up and went in the city, and multitudes of people saw him, so there was no mistaking it. That was a weird day. There's never been a day like that in the history of this world. And there won't be a day to compare to it until the Lord raptures us out of here. That'll be a weird one. And it was for us. That is for our benefit. For our salvation. His object was our welfare. I'll tell you something else. It was for us in the the sense of instead of us in our place. Buddy, Buddy, You're getting real close to salvation when you realize that you are a sinner already spiritually dead and headed for a second eternal death but Christ loved me and gave himself for me and took my death for me. When you realize that you, you you hadn't necessarily received him yet but you're getting real close. It's highly likely you're about to get saved when you realize that. You know what most people don't do? They never even think about that. That never even crosses their mind. But not only was it for you, it was for all. You can go hand out tracts at school, at the workplace, on the street corner, door to door, preach on the street, preach on the radio, preach at a nursing home, preach at a rescue mission, preach at a jail. I don't care where you go, you'll be preaching a message that is for everybody everywhere you find them. Africa, Asia, Europe. Does anybody live in Antarctica? I think maybe there's a Navy thing that goes down there every now and then. Wherever you find people, you can preach this. Any continent, any place. It's for all. Now this has been much disputed. Uh, many people say they want to prevent the possibility of God's plan of salvation failing to save somebody that he's trying to save. They just can't get that God would fail. To them. Oh, God didn't fail. He He succeeded. But he does allow people to reject what he so gloriously succeeded at. Hebrews 10 says it this way, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the spirit of grace. You can reject it. Jesus dying on that cross for you, shedding his blood for you, being buried and rising again the third day for you, and all you have to do is receive him, and you don't have to pay any money, and you don't have to join the right church, and you don't have to go through any rituals, just receive him. Just take him. Just say, Lord, save me. I'll take your salvation. It's totally free, but there are still people everywhere that reject it every day. You can reject it. And so this is disputed because a lot of people just can't wrap their mind around God failing at something. But that isn't God failing. That's somebody else rejecting. Yes. Many references teach that his death was for all men. Our text, verse 14, says um, if one died for all, then we're all dead. Uh, Let's see, I've got a bunch of others. Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's no way around it. 1 Timothy 2, 6, Who gave himself a ransom for all. Hebrews 2, 9, That he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. First John 2, 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He died for all. There's no doubt about it. Now let's look at the design of Christ's death. What is, for those of you that are saved, what did he die for? You're already saved. You're already going to go to heaven when you die. You've already got eternal life. There's more to his death than just getting you in heaven when you die. What's being talked about in this passage Verse 14, for the love of Christ constraineth us. It ought to make you do some things. I looked up that word constrain. It means to compel by physical, moral, or circumstantial force. To oblige or force somebody to do something. Or to keep within close bounds confined. There are some things that the love of Christ won't let you out of. There are some things that if just left to my flesh, I would do. But because of the testimony of Jesus Christ... I'm not going to do them. There are some things that I'd rather just lay on the couch and not do. (laughs) But because of the testimony of Jesus Christ, I'm going to get up, go out, and do them. It has both a confining meaning and it has a compelling meaning. Uh, Another meaning of it is to inhibit or restrain, to hold back. So, number one, the love of Christ Compels us or constrains us to love Jesus in return. We love Him because He first loved us. The number one thing that makes you love somebody is when they love you. <laughs> I mean it just is. If somebody just really likes Bob Schofield, I like it. I can't think of one person that ever really liked me that I didn't appreciate that and liked them for liking me. I thought, I mean, they're, they're a smart person with good taste. <laughs> If Jesus Christ loved you, especially loved you that much, and you put any thought into it, you'll love him. And especially if you're a saving person, realizing what he did for you. It constrains us to love Jesus in return. It constrains us to identify with his cause. That's my verse on this one. 1 John 5.2 By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. Alright? So we should not, because of this, we should not live unto ourselves. We don't come up with our own set of rules. We go by God's rules. We do what He says to do. What does our uh, text say? For the love of Christ constraineth us. It makes me do something or it prevents me from doing something that I would normally do. Uh, see, Titus 2.14. Where's my verse on that? Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So one of the reasons he died for you and loved you and saved you is so you get busy for him. Now, the first one, admittedly, is so we'll miss hell. When I first got saved, I didn't want to go to hell. And I did want to go to heaven. And that was it. But as I got growing and studying the Word of God, I found out there was more to it than that. If there was no more to it than that, then boom, the minute we get saved, he could just kill us, have the death angel come take us home to glory, and we're in total bliss and wonder for all of eternity right then. So why in the world would he leave us down here? Here's why. He's got something for us to do. And What is the first part of this uh, design of Christ's death for us? That we should do something for him. Well, number one, that we don't live unto ourselves. We're in Corinthians. Here, let me read you over in 1 Corinthians 6. One of the things that's real popular in the psychological couches and therapist couches and uh, podcasts and self-help books and stuff is, you do what's best for you. You take care of yourself. You do what makes you happy. Don't you, don't you let other people, don't let society's norms tell you what to do. You do what makes you happy. That is not in the New Testament. Amen. Look at 1 first, uh, first Corinthians 6.20 For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. Don't be a self-made man. Don't be a strong independent woman. You don't even belong to yourself. You've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And let let me say you're definitely his if you've been bought with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I promise you he overpaid for you. (laughs) If I went and If there's a house for sale for $100,000 and I like it and I want to make dead sure it's mine and I just insist that they take $200,000 for it, they definitely wouldn't have any right to come back a year later and try to take that house back and say, I didn't buy it because I got a bill of sale that not only says I paid the going price, I doubled it just to make sure. Let me tell you about the blood of Jesus Christ. It is an overpayment for somebody as sorry as me. I'll guarantee you, he paid for me. He owns me lock, stock, and barrel. What I want to do is not a consideration, or at least it's very very much a secondary consideration. Ye are bought with the price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now look across the page. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 23. Ye are bought with the price, be not ye the servants of men. Because Jesus Christ bought you, don't you serve yourself and don't you serve other people. Now, he's saying that to people that are in actual slavery, in actual servitude. And he doesn't tell them to leave. He says, in whatever place you find yourself, you serve God in that place. If you're married, you serve God as a married person. If you're single, you serve God as a single person. If you're rich, you serve God as a rich man. If you're poor, you serve God as a poor person. Whichever way, if you live in a free country, you serve God as a free person. If you're in a communist regime, you serve God as a practically enslaved person. Whichever way you find yourself, remember you're serving God, not whoever the boss is over you. So we should not live unto ourselves. Every unsaved man lives unto himself. He acts as he pleases. He does not fear God. He does not acknowledge God. In fact, the Bible says he's actually the enemy of God. Romans 8, 7, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. If somebody is living with a carnal mind, you know what they're doing? They're living in enmity against God. Because God's the Spirit. The flesh and the Spirit fight against each other. All right. Uh, let's see what else have we got here. Ephesians 2.15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments. And it says at the end of the verse, so making peace. So there's enmity. Uh, Philippians three eighteen and 19, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Colossians 1, And you that were sometime alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. This is not only criminal, it's ruinous. If you pay for something, and you overpay for it, and then I steal it from you, that's especially bad. I was at a football game yesterday, I guess it was, and a bottle of water was $5. Now, if I go down here to Walmart and find them on special for $1. twenty-seven, and you steal it from me, that's a little aggravating. But if I'm there paying $5 for a bottle of water and $5 for a hot dog and three fifty for a bag of chips, I don't remember the exact prices, but they were something r- ridiculous, way more than you would pay at, a, at the discount store or the Dollar General or the Walmart or whatever, and you steal it from me, uh, that makes it hurt even more <laughs> that I lost something that I paid way too much for anyway. Let me tell you something. If the Lord Jesus has shed his blood for you and you just live for yourself, that's a ripoff, man. That's criminal. Amen. But not only that, it's ruinous. It'll ruin you. Luke nineteen twenty-seven. here's what he says about his enemies that he was rightfully reigning over and they rebelled against him. He says, but those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. So the design of Christ's life is that we should not... uh, Death, I'm sorry, is that we should not live unto ourselves. So what should we do? Well, we should live unto Christ. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Verse 15, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves but unto him which died for them. Now, who was it that died for us? Jesus. So that's who we ought to be living for. Number one, by being saved. First Peter 3.18 talks about these things and says, um, Christ hath once suffered it up for, for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So you ought to, first of all, live for him by being saved, and secondly, by being submitted to him. So that's the design of Christ's death. Now let's look at the definite effect of Christ's love. It constrains us. It constrains us. It constrains us, as I said a minute ago, to love Jesus in return. It constrains us, secondly, to identify with his cause. James 4.4 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. If you see how Jesus Christ loved you and you begin to love him back, you don't want to identify with his enemies. You know how I know somebody isn't living close to the Lord? When they want to please their flesh. Oh, I do not deny that we're living in flesh. So that desire comes up. That's not what rules over us. And if we need any other proof of that, you know what it is? This flesh hates the Lord Jesus. It doesn't want to live for him. I'll tell you another one. The world. This world hated the Lord Jesus when he showed up. And it ain't fell in love with him since either. Amen if you want to please this world and you want to dress like this world and you want to be cool like this world and you want to hang out with this world and you want to be friends with this world, can't love Jesus. It doesn't make any sense. Just just like as I've tried to illustrate it in the past, if I knew somebody was planning on going to your house and killing you tonight and hurting your family the worst they possibly could and I just was the best friends I could to them and helped them in any way I could except I wouldn't actually pull the trigger but I'd help them in any way I could. Am I really a friend to you? That's right. Let me tell you about your flesh in the world. They hate your Jesus. They don't want anything good for him at all. And you can't tell me you love Jesus and trying to be like them and befriend them and be crazy about Now, to lead them to Jesus, to repentance, now that's one thing, that's different. But to help them in their cause, no way. We want to identify with His because tell you something else, and this is, this is not the most fun part, but it's true. It, constra- it constrains you to suffer for His sake. If He was stripped off naked and uh, called guilty by somebody that was way more guilty than He was, because of course He wasn't guilty at all, and beat on by somebody that was way weaker than Him, all the shame that goes with all those things you and I can suffer some shame for him. and the disciples, it says in the book of Acts, rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. All right, now it constrains us to suffer for his sake. Philippians 1.29 says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for his sake. Philippians 3.8 Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and to count them but dung that I may win Christ. Bible, or the old poem, talks about somebody that takes scars for following the Lord. And the last line of that poem says something real close to this. It says, Can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? Most American Christians, they have no wound, no scar. I know they're not following Jesus. The road of Jesus has thorns on it. Oh, yes. You won't stay on that road long without having a wound. And it'll leave a scar. When you look down and remember who you took that for, it takes all the sting out of it. I'm happy to hurt and to sacrifice for the Lord Jesus. There was even one of those easy listening music songs from back when I was a kid that said, it's no sacrifice. It's no sacrifice at all. When you really love the person, it doesn't even hurt. You're glad to do it for. And that's the way we ought to feel about our Lord Jesus. It constrains us to suffer for his sake. 2 Timothy 3, 12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But it also says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. There's blessing to it. When you get talking like this, a lot of people get feeling down, and, oh, that's a negative sermon. And Yeah, there's a negative side to it, but no more negative than the poor old world has to go through. serving their flesh and their... They're gods. Our God is way better one to serve. Even in those cases where we take death for our service to the Lord Jesus, He gives peace even while you're going through that. And we told you many of those stories in Baptist history. It's probably about time to pull that out again here before too long. It constrains us to suffer for His sake. Tell you something else it constrains us to suffer for the good of others. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, Even as I please all men and all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Now, when you think about these things and you, when you listen to a message like this, don't get thinking this is all down. Don't get thinking this is all hard. Don't get thinking this is all drudgery. Let me tell you about the Lord's commandments. They're not grievous. You serve others a while, and you look at the Lord change their countenance. I don't care if you didn't sacrifice; it doesn't hurt anymore. Even when you, even when they don't necessarily get saved, and don't get me wrong, we want to see everyone get saved. It would, but when you're giving somebody the gospel and you see it's having the effect, and you see the change in their countenance, and you see the Lord, the Holy Spirit putting them under conviction, and you realize you're working side by side with Jesus. All of a sudden, it's worth it. When you don't exactly feel like getting up and going to church, but the Spirit starts talking to you and the singing or the praying or the preaching or something, it's worth it. Amen. Now, yeah, it was it was uncomfortable to have to get up and get dressed when you didn't feel like it. We've all got flesh, don't we? But it makes it worth it when you do something with Jesus. Now, what have we looked at tonight? We've looked at the Gospel and its effects just in this short text. 2 Corinthians. It begins with the sinner's state. What was he? Dead. But thank God he gave them the remedy for this. What was that? Jesus dying for you. If you're here tonight you've never received the Lord Jesus as your Savior, let me tell you something somebody already died for you. You don't have to take that second death. It then reveals the purpose of the wonderful salvation that we've been given. And it's this, that we stop living for ourselves and instead live for Christ. And what a wonderful influence this love has when shed abroad in our hearts because it compels us to do some things and restrains us from doing some things. Now, Christian, I want to ask you this. What has the love of Jesus Christ made you stop doing recently? What has the love of Jesus Christ made you start doing recently or maybe kept you faithful at recently one thing that breaks my heart as I've observed Christians over my life is a lot of them quit oh yeah Paul I, I, I know what he's saying when he writes to the Galatians ye did run well who did hinder you I've often had that thought when I've seen Christians just quit ye did run well what did hinder you I'll tell you one thing If you've got the love of the Lord Jesus Christ like you should, you keep doing it. You say, well, I quit because I got tired. Well, yeah, but what about Jesus? If you really love somebody, if you really love your child, or you really love your sweetheart, or you really love your close friend, and they need something, it doesn't matter if you are tired. You're there. Mm -hmm. Now, put Jesus in that close circle of friends. Matter of fact, put him at the head of it if he hadn't already. The love of Christ strength us dear heavenly father we thank you for this chance to read your word and i pray to your god that-